This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. When it comes to practicing, we often talk about the what you should be practicing to improve your musicianship or your jazz skills. And often some tactics are prescribed. I know that I often prescribe certain practice regimens, different things that you can do to accelerate your progress, but we often don't talk about the deeper side, the brain side, the psychological side of practicing, how we can speed up our development by the way we think, by the way we feel physically. And all these things that are kind of meta and beneath the surface of what we normally talk about when we talk about practicing. So on today's show, I have a very special guest, Mark Gelfo, the founder of the practicing app Modacity, to get inside of all this stuff with us to talk about the mind, the body, and music, and how we can apply some real strategies for improving our practicing and improving our progress. Let's do this thing. Welcome to the LJS Podcast, where you get weekly jazz tips, interviews, stories, and advice for becoming a better jazz musician. And now your host, he's a jazz musician, author, and entrepreneur, Brent Bartstra. Hey, hey, everybody. What's up? Brent here from LearnJazzStandards.com, which is a blog, a podcast, videos, and a membership, all geared towards helping you become a better jazz musician. Like I said, we have a special guest on the show today. It is Mark Gelfo from Modacity. Modacity is an app that helps you practice more efficiently, more effectively. A little bit about Mark Gelfo before we go ahead and get started. Mark Gelfo applied cognitive science and computer science degrees from Northwestern University to his passion for music, creating an international career as a neurosymphonic French hornist. During his six years playing with the Hong Kong Philharmonic, he also intensively trained Wing Chun Kung Fu integrating lessons from Eastern spirituality and practice into his musicianship. In 2017, after his second international tour performing at the San Francisco Symphony, Mark pivoted to tech entrepreneurship. He founded the Modacity Music Practice app to make masterful practice available to anybody with a smartphone. In addition to being an experienced performer and music educator, Mark is also a certified yoga teacher and permaculture designer, a very multi-talented, multifaceted individual. Excited to have him back on the show. We had him back on episode 100. And 31. We're going to talk about some awesome practice strategies, some emotional, some physical uh, concepts behind practicing. And I know you're going to find this a very enlightening episode as well. Mark is also giving a special offer on Modacity to Learn Jazz Standards podcast listeners. You want to check that out? Go to modacity.co forward slash learn jazz standards, modacity.co forward slash learn jazz standards. You can learn more about the app there and how it could really help you if your practice and take it to the next level. All right, without further ado, let's get on Mark Gelfo. All right, welcoming on the show is Mark Gelfo, the founder of Modacity. Uh, so glad to have you back on the show again, Mark. Thank you very much, Brent. 
Uh, so tell me, Mark, first of all, before we get started, like what you've been up to lately, what's been going on since the last time we uh, had you on the show? I think it was episode 131. Bingo. Yeah. Numbers mind right there. Um, <laughs> we were talking about neuroscience of practice. I had just yes. launched Modacity and it's been quite a whirlwind journey since then. One of the biggest sort of inflection points I think for everybody has been this pandemic. Yeah. And luckily software online hasn't been affected so much, but there's, or in fact, you know, folks are going online for more resources uh, in, in this time. For me, there was a huge lesson actually that's coming up that I wanted to share as what's been very alive for me, which is trust. Yeah. My trust deepened right before the pandemic. I was got this sequence of invitations to perform. And Philadelphia Orchestra called me and said, hey, can you come and play with us? Oh, that's so cool. In end of January, beginning of February, I think, something like that, of 2020. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And <laughs> I see what's coming. Wow. I'm, I'm not uh, super, I haven't been doing as much playing as I used to when I was a full-time symphony horn player. You've been an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. I've been working on tech. So, so preparing to play with Philadelphia Orchestra at, at the pinnacle of classical music was a little scary. And immediately I said yes, because it was a gut yes. Immediately after, someone called and said, oh, hey, do you want to come play with the Modesto Symphony two weeks before Philadelphia Orchestra? Said, oh, man. Sure, great. Like a little less pressure. Uh, perfect. And then I got another call that said, hey, do you want to play just a little chamber music series, Brandenburg Concerto, a week before Modesto Symphony? I said, sure. That's great. So it just stacked all of these opportunities right up. And then do you want to play a concerto as a soloist with a band right after Philadelphia? So I had this arc that took me on a French horn player's absolute dream, even after I had sort of given up uh, or at least put on the back burner my performing career of Brandenburg concertos in chamber, uh, movie music with Modesto Symphony. And then I had a lesson with one of the most legendary horn players, Dave Crable. Then playing with Philadelphia Orchestra, and then performing as a soloist, a concerto with a band. At which point the pandemic hit. Yeah, I was waiting for <laughs> that I, one. And I thought, well, I don't know when I'm going to play again publicly, but that was a heck of a ride. Man, that is so exciting. And congratulations on, I mean, that's so cool that all of those amazing opportunities came up for you. And I mean, it's just a testament to, to you as a musician. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll receive that <laughs> compliment. And also, I thought, gosh, this is a testament to something bigger than myself. Yeah. It felt like a gift and a reminder to trust in the flow of events to say yes when it's a yes. And um, really, really be in that trust, which which continues. And so now that we have a total shift in the ecosystem, a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty, that trust has stuck with me throughout this time as it's as it's navigating where I go, who I'm with, etc. 
So that's kind of what's been up for me on a very high I, level. I love that. I'm so glad I asked the question. Uh, it just, it's a, uh, like, a, I feel like a bunch of life lessons packed in there. And I'm excited to talk to you about something today that I know, I mean, you created Modacity. It's an app for practicing. Uh, so I know that you know a thing or two about practice, <laughs> practicing, which, by the way, is something that is at the center of everything we do at Learn Jazz Standards. I'm a firm believer that um, you can learn all the, the, the music theory hacks and tricks and improv, th- you know, this and that and the licks and all that stuff and all that is well and good. But uh, to me, practicing effectively with strength, with intention has been the game-changing thing for me and my students. And I know you know a ton about that. So let, let's get started with that. Let's, I want to start hearing uh, some of your thoughts here. Talk to me about your story and how you came to uh, practicing, uh, I guess, practicing well. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but I'll let you jump off and take it from here. Mm. Commitment to practicing masterfully. Mm, that's better. How I would how I would frame it. Although wellness and practice is absolutely a part of that. I noticed... We both shared a laugh <laughs> as practice came up and a sort of a knowing laugh yeah. of there's pain in there, there's pleasure in there. And I was reminded of my Kung Fu grandmaster mm. in Hong Kong. Fun fact, I studied Wing Chun Kung Fu very seriously for a few years in Hong Kong, which is where it was originated. And Bruce Lee learned it and turned it into Jeet Kune Do. And my grandmaster was this 83-year-old who... Um, actually beat his cancer using Kung Fu techniques. I swear I'm getting somewhere with this. He, I'm following, man. He <laughs> I'm had on the, along for the ride. This, this laugh. He would be showing a move, and he'd get three big, bulky guys. This guy was probably 100 pounds or so, right? 80-something years old. And he'd hold out his hand, and he'd say, three, three guys, hang on my forearm. And <laughs> they'd hang on his forearm, and they couldn't get his arm to pull down (laughs) and he wouldn't be sitting there like stone cold stable he'd be sitting there as his arm would be moving around shaking because he'd be discharging their energy and he'd be laughing (laughs) and he would just sit there and laugh and laugh and laugh and and totally frustrate these huge men and i remember thinking that that laugh not only came from power, but it came from pain. Hmm. And when we shared this laugh a moment ago, talking about practice, and I felt the pain and, and the power that comes from reclaiming that pain, that just felt like the perfect entry point to cover my journey to practicing and commitment to practicing masterfully. Because I had a lot of frustration, as a lot of folks probably did, there are so many music programs around the world that aren't necessarily nurturing of one's unique talents and ways of learning. So I was quite frustrated when I started playing piano at five and then violin and cello in middle school, French horn around 12. And the guy said, you see this here, this French horn, you got to be smart to play French horn. Who wants to play French horn? And I was, oh, me, 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 me. <laughs> It's a hard instrument to play. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, yeah, that's that's one of the beliefs floating out there. Why is that, right? 
Someone what? told me that. That's the only reason I believe it. <laughs> I've never played yeah. a French horn. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people have told me that. A lot of people believe that. A lot of French horn players believe that. How does that impact the way that they approach the instrument, believing that it's hard? Probably not so positively. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. So he asked me if I had straight A's. I said yes, and I got started on the French horn, and I couldn't make a sound for about a week. Uh, fast forward, I was high school section leader, and all I wanted to do was get to all-state band. And I remember taking those auditions and shaking like just horribly in the auditions and never getting into all-state. And then auditioning for about five music schools, Northwestern, Eastman, a whole list of pretty good music schools. And they all sent me rejection letters that said, yeah, we're really sorry we can't admit you into the program, but if you'd like to study computer science, we've got full scholarships for you. I That was very interesting. And I ended up matriculating into Northwestern to do computer science that rapidly shifted into cognitive science. And that's when I had my first aha moment. Because there's all this literature on learning and cognitive science, especially on language learning, which is very adjacent to music learning. Yeah. I was studying Chinese at the time, and I, and I thought, oh my goodness, the way my university Chinese professors are teaching Chinese is very out of line with what cognitive science is saying about how to actually retain information, how to drill it, concepts like interleaving, spaced repetition, uh, contextual dependence and interdependence that we're going to talk about later that apply to music, we're applying to Chinese. I got very fascinated in how to hack learning and did so in some ways for my Chinese. And I became a very strong Chinese speaker. They wanted to send me to Beijing for international Chinese competition, which got canceled due to the SARS pandemic. So long pandemic histories there. Yes. Um, but ultimately, I wanted to do music. And probably all of your listeners here are going to resonate with the experience, the phenomenon of a spark in the soul that just says, there's something about music that I have to be doing. I have to create. I have to play. This can't be it. Kenny Werner talks about that in Effortless Mastery, mm -hmm. that you need to play well as the sort of North Star for all of us creators. And I was trying to play horn throughout, throughout Northwestern as an amateur. I took a few lessons. I played in the non-major symphony, but wasn't really getting anywhere. And I applied to a few more music schools, and people were saying, sorry, you're too old. You're not talented enough. You know, you're just not quite there. Finally, one teacher took me in at Indiana, Myron Bloom, who was like a grandfather to me. And our first lesson, he, he, he shook his head and said, you know what? I think you might be too smart to play French horn. Why would he say too smart? I don't get that. <laughs> I was asking him all these questions. All right, what does the tongue do? How do we do the... Oh, okay. I get it. Okay. And that was also a shifting point to me towards a journey of embodiment 
And there's the intelligence up here in the, in the brain, so to speak, or in the mind that does need to drive our learning, but there's embodied intelligence as well. And I hadn't woken up to my body at this point. I just started taking Alexander Technique lessons and I had learned how to relax my arm for the first time in my life at age 22. That woke me up to the immense role. We're not making music with our minds. We're making music with our bodies as the primary instrument mm -hmm. that we're controlling. And this ties directly into practice because we need a physical practice in order to have physical mastery so that we can operate our instruments, whether it's a voice or a piano or a horn or whatever. That's so interesting. Uh, so what, what were some of the things in that realization of the physicality of practice? Like what were some of the things that you started doing differently from that point? Mm -hmm. Am I jumping ahead? <laughs> no, that's a very, very good question. Awareness. Awareness and attention is what it boils down to. I could talk about the 1,500 different techniques, the Feldenkrais, the Alex technique, the yoga, the Qigong, you name it, I've done it. But ultimately, it comes down to building awareness and intention. And so I was at Indiana. There were all of these really serious horn players around me, 40 horn players in the studio, which is huge for a conservatory. I was basically at the bottom when I came in. And... But I was equipped with a cognitive science degree and I had my lab notebooks and my lab was the practice room. So I was basically just attending to what was going on in my body. Oh, right arm is tense. Well, actually that tension propagates up the arm to the lungs. It's inhibiting the ability to breathe bigger. Mm. It's that tension is killing my resonance, which is killing my sound. So if I want a better tone and I want to be able to breathe better, actually I can go to the arm. Gotcha. Right. I can train the arm and then I can do small drills. Like I can put the horn down on my lap, shake it out for a second, pay attention to what it's like when the arm is relaxed, bring the horn back up and cultivate that relaxation in the arm and notice, well, did that open my breathing a little? Did it affect my tone a little bit? Self recordings part of this. I was practicing already quite well at Indiana and I was frustrated because it took a lot of rigor to record all this information, to use my crappy audio recording app that was not meant for practicing, to use my stopwatch and timers, you know, and manual charts of metronome BPM, you name it. And none of it was very well organized. And I could tell that it was killing my flow. I didn't know about flow at that point, but it was, it was hindering me. So I started dreaming up building some software, like a practice platform, a practice environment for myself. And I even coded a few things when I was at Indiana for myself that further helped. I'm starting to wonder if there's like something that you can't do. You Kung Fu, you speak Chinese. <laughs> uh, I know you do. You're a yoga teacher as well. Did you say that? Yeah. To me? Yeah. I mean, it's like, what? <laughs> Is there something that Mark Gelfo cannot do? That's, <laughs> that's the real mm. question. Is there anything that any of us can't do that's with a, the right practice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're a highly, you're a highly motivated person. Let's just put it that way. And, and it's a great I, thing. I am motivated. <laughs> and that's a big part of learning too. If you want something, that's going to unlock um, a lot. So Stephen Kotler, for example, uh, from the Flow Genome Project, uh, 
you know, New York Times bestselling author has been studying flow for the last 20 years. And he, he talks about having high, hard goals that gives you an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. And that ties into ambition. When you have bigger goals, you're going to be more motivated. When you're more motivated, you're going to be more emotionally activated. When you're more emotionally activated, you're going to have more energy and you're going to have better retention and you're going to be more likely to slip into a flow state. You've you've talked about flow multiple times. Could you, for those listening, uh, explain that a little bit more when you you talk (laughs) about flow and practicing? Mm, Yeah, and flow and performing as well. I'll illustrate by what it's not. I like that. First. And continue sort of the journey because at this point I was practicing and performing a lot, but I wasn't in flow a lot. So I got the opportunity to audition for Macau Orchestra. Macau is this tiny little island by Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm a couple years into my my second undergraduate at Indiana because I had to start fresh with music. And they offered me a trial. I came, I dropped out of school because I couldn't do the trial and go to school. So I dropped out of Indiana to risk everything on this trial. And I played great in the trial and then I played the audition this is what an audition looks like when you're not in flow. You show up, you've got your science notebook with all of your excerpts and BPM and things that you should be doing. And you're warming up and you're thinking, oh, oh God, like, yeah, this is feeling a little funny today. What should I do next? Um, oh, ooh, I'm a little stiff. Uh, and you're nervous and you don't know how to discharge your nervousness and everything seems hard. And you're thinking, God, if only I could play a high C and, but you don't even have to play a high C in the audition. You only have to play a high B flat and your thoughts are just all over the place. Your body's contracted. You walk into the audition and you, you don't even know that you're playing music because you're so in your head. Mm, I've I've been there before. Oh, a lot of us have, man. (sighs) I played that audition. I was shaking. I was totally out of my body and there was zero musical flow. I think tempo, one of these things that comes from being in flow, rhythm, pulse, out the window. And you don't even realize it because you're thinking about everything. And they came up to me after the audition and said, basically, well, thank you. Your trial went stunningly. You sounded great when you played in the orchestra and your colleagues loved you and we really appreciate you dropping out of school to take <laughs> take a bet on on this job opportunity. But based on the way that you played in the audition, we simply can't hire you. I'm Ooh. sorry. <laughs> that one hurts. Oh, oh man. Uh, the tumbles. The tumbles. There was a teacher. I, I flew back to Indiana with my sort of tail between my legs. And Jeff Nelson had just gotten hired. And he he's the creator of A Fearless Performance methodology and immense player who's played with Canadian brass. He kind of took me under his wing, even though I wasn't enrolled in school anymore. And he started showing me, look, you need to access a state when you're actually making music. Mm. You're actually in touch with what's happening and you're not interfering. So you need to learn how to quiet your mind. You need to learn to learn how to stop interfering And you need to learn how to cultivate that so that you can bring it to a performance. 
Yeah. So everything, it's so funny when I'm listening to you talk, everything you just said about that audition, not only could I resonate with moments in my musical career where that's happened to me, but this is something mm-hmm. that I hear from a lot of our members. I hear from a mm-hmm. lot of our community here, this mm-hmm. exact same feeling of yeah. as soon as you get up there to play, you shut down in a sense mm-hmm. and you can't access the music anymore. Mm-hmm. How, how do we quiet our minds? How do we, how do we get to that flow state? Like what, what are some of the strategies that you would recommend? Like what was the breaking point for you that, uh, what did you learn from your mentor in Indiana to help you with this? Oh, so much to it. it that, that was 2006 and I'm still working on it to be honest. And I've made so many inroads but every single year it's been a deeper and deeper investigation. I want to acknowledge you for your resonance with that pain and your experience in naming that. And one of the ways that we reclaim it or alchemize it is to transform that into contribution. Hmm. So as even as we're on this podcast, you've got that that book you've written in the background there, and I'm looking yep. at it because it's red, so it's actually it's visually uh, the loudest. That's thing. Uh, that's purposeful. <laughs> yeah, and that's one way you do it is you turn your pain into contribution. I and love that. when you can show up and play for others, and your primary consideration is contribution, not what's in it for me. You won't shake. I love that. So a removal of the ego, is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, or a modulation of the ego at least. Okay, that's that makes more sense, yes. Yeah, make make ha- help the ego to align towards being in service. And if you're lucky enough to get the ego out of the way, well, that's, that's when flow really happens. And so aligning the ego is the first step. I want to be in service. And then also healing some of that pain. So psychotherapy, especially somatic psychotherapy for musicians is really useful. I've done a lot of therapy and it has really opened up pathways into my life. Yeah, me too. Yeah, for sure. Jeff at Indiana, you were asking how he impacted me. I think that he did it by creating a safe space for me. So in a sense, it was a form of a therapy relationship so that's ultimately what a therapist does is they create a safe space for you and a loving relationship to repattern your self-relationships. And Jeff said, look, man, I don't care if you miss a note or if you sound like crap. I just want you to play the music. Do it in front of me. And the first time he said that, I was just, I was frozen. I said, I can't, I can't do that. I have to play right. Yeah. Up until that point, he said, no, you don't have to play right. Just play it wrong, you know? And but play it from the heart. And so we grooved that a little bit. We started building up that muscle. That then I've also at the same time built the muscle of committing myself to playing music. And when you say committing yourself to playing music, can you describe that a little bit more? Yeah. It's every moment of music has an having an emotional connection to what you're doing. And oftentimes we can get distracted by micromanaging notes or dynamics Mm -hmm. or phrasing. That's thinking. 
this is a common problem for improvisers yes (laughs) yeah yeah all of a sudden you're think you're thinking all right the five chords coming up and okay i want to land on the third scale degree of the five chord and how am i gonna absolutely tailor my line to land on that well that's you can think that but you want to have cognitive processes that are devoted to communicating a feeling expressing something as a dominant cognitive process otherwise it's not music if it's not expressing something it's just sound yes yes absolutely and in fact it's quite harsh when you listen to someone who's in their head if you're a sensitive listener you can hear the difference between when someone is playing from their head and playing from their heart you can usually see it in the body language too mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And sort of that, like, and I, I, you know, I've certainly been there before, but you know, I can, I can witness it in other people that tightness, the physical mm-hmm. tightness that you were referring to earlier, when you're really mm-hmm. thinking about executing something so intentionally, yeah. instead of just letting it flow out, you, you tend to tighten up a little bit, or at least, I, I you know, I've, I've seen mm-hmm. that. Yeah, tightness constricts flow. Tightness kills sound, and that's why practicing well really matters because how you do one thing is how you do everything. So if you're approaching your music in a way that's contractive to your being, you're, and you do that day in, day out, where your muscles get tight, oh, it hurts, oh, I'm tight, you know, the next day you show up and you're even better at it. <laughs> it's like right. that 10,000 hours of mastery I- idea. At some point, I realized that I had spent 10,000 hours becoming a master in criticizing my playing. (laughs) Yes. And I thought, holy crap, I want to be a little bit more mindful about what I devote my next 10,000 hours to. I love that. I think that's a, if, if, you know, you could just tweet a podcast quote, that would be a a tweetable one right there. (laughs) Mm. You know, spending 10,000 hours criticizing your playing versus what would change if you spent 10,000 hours, you know, shifting that focus to a more positive narrative for improving your playing? I think that's an interesting idea. And I love that you use the word narrative because this ties in, we we were going to talk about some innovative practice strategies today. And one of the strategies that I want to share is just naming where the power of words to consolidate and direct an idea is extremely powerful. And if you're just thinking, yeah, I just want to be positive. I just want to be positive when I practice. It's a little bit tricky to maintain that. Whereas if you're naming what you're practicing as scales, you're going to practice scales. (laughs) If you're going to practice, if you're naming what you're practicing elegant swift scales, oh my, now you're mastering something different. And when you say that, your frame of mind is different around those scales just by the words you're choosing? Is that that what you mean? Absolutely, absolutely. What you're doing from a neurological level is that you're priming the semantic neighborhoods of neural neural networks around the words, what I use, elegant and swift, right? So elegance has a lot. I mean, when I say that word, you're thinking of the word, 
there's a whole neighborhood that gets activated neurologically. Grace, for example, might come up. A dancer might come up. Your experiences of elegance in art might come up. So there's a huge network being activated when you say elegant. Now that network's activated. If I say swift, I'm imagining、uh, speed without effort. Right.、Mm-hmm. I'm imagining lightness. And for me, sadly, the Swift programming language is coming up, but <laughs> that's totally different. <laughs>、um, now, elegant Swift scales. What fires together wires together. What fires together wires together. Neurologically, have you heard that before?、Uh, I, this is the, my first time, but it. Oh my goodness! But it sounds like it's going to make a lot of sense. Absolutely, you fire it together, it wires together.、Um, literally, when when、uh, neural pathways. Fire when they light up, when when two of them fire at the same time, they start to branch and connect. Yeah, and then that becomes sort of a super pathway, if you will, a consolidated pathway that over time becomes one pathway. Got you. So elegant swift scales. All of a sudden, now your scales. Every time you play a scale, it's wired to elegance and swiftness. So interesting. So what I'm gathering here is creating some kind of emotional connection to even practicing something mundane like scales、mm-hmm. can shift your perspective. And you know, to, I guess t- talk a little bit more about you know, not only are you going to be practicing it differently, what else does it do for you as far as learning the material or internalizing the material? That can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, there's there's an emotional connection. There can be really any intention around it, and it's really about the compound effect of intentions. So I mentioned I spent ten thousand hours practicing all sorts of different things, and but I didn't actually know. I didn't. I wasn't pointing them all in the same direction. Right. Now, if you spend one hour practicing elegant swift scales, it's not that big of a deal. But you know about compound interest and how yeah, compounding、sure、creates huge, huge changes. And if you're practicing your scales elegantly and swiftly, if you're practicing autumn leaves with great color and coolness, for example, if you are learning. Mixolydian licks with metallic sheen <laughs> one day, and practicing Mixolydian licks in blue the next day or the next week. There's going to be a compound effect where all of a sudden, after ten thousand hours of that, honestly, after even a month of that. You're going to be a completely different artist than if you were practicing scales, autumn leaves, and mixolydian licks. Do、yeah. you see how that will compound? I I totally do, and I'm I'm really resonating with it as well because、uh, you know it. Oh man, it's it, it you know when it's it's we all know that practicing your scale. I mean, we're using we're talking about scales a lot, so I'm just using that for example. There's a everybody、number. loves scales.、Um, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about、I、Netflix mean, and we, scales. You in a know.、Minute. Uh, we know that it's it's a great way to learn or explore your instrument, right? Or get inside 
uh, for you, I'm sure a lot about intonation, about a lot about ac- attack. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of different things, especially in the classical realm that maybe I don't even think about as a jazz musician. But you know, we know that they're great. Uh, they're great tools. I think a tool is a good is a good name for it. A good good tool to use. But it seems so. It seems so mundane or it seems so basic maybe some people would say or it seems so like what am i really gonna get out of this outside of the surface like a guitar player for example might learn how to play scales in all positions on the fretboard and Mm -hmm. that's going to open up my ability to navigate my fretboard but Mm -hmm. after that what is it going to do but sort of what you're the way you're describing it practicing with these emotional connections it goes so much deeper than that with what you're really experiencing, even working on the simplest things. Is that, am I tracking with you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the next time someone wants to practice their scales, this could be a good, a good thing to try. I've highly suggested. <laughs> and, and this takes me to how you organize your practice in some ways. I had these, I think, 15 physical practice journals that I started finally just digitized and burned. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't actually burn them. But, but there was such a linear format. And so I was organizing my practice by points on a timeline. Okay. Where, okay, you got one page is one day, and then the next page is the next day, and you're thinking about days as sort of the unit of practice when you're making entries in a journal. And it didn't make any sense because what you're really wanting to do is deepen in on individual subjects that are named as we're talking about. So you want to be practicing elegant swift scales. So if you've got a written journal, I started doing um, like three ring binders and I would just put in a page called elegant swift scales and then i would log my times and my insights under that and have another page for ein heldenleben sounds heroic for example and so there's there's like an organizational component here yes we'll get into modacity in a little bit i was, I was gonna say are you still using binders because i know you have modacity and this is essentially what modacity does well that's it yeah it's a lot of people listening are going to go, well, I'm practicing so much. And when I name it, how am I going to name it? Am I going to get three by five cards and write the names of things on three by five cards and shuffle them and maybe roll, roll a dice? Well, yeah, sure. Go for it. That sounds fun. Um, or get a binder. You know, there's a million ways to do it. You can create a file system on your computer. You can create Evernotes for it. But for me... Like, man, I was wasting a lot of time writing down the times, consolidating all the information. So that's how Modacity got into it. I, I'd rather kind of stay the course on talking some of these Yeah, please, techniques. please, please. But naming what you're practicing. Name what you practice. And name it so that it creates a compounding effect and wires together with concepts or intentions that are meaningful to you. Now, when you say, so I'm trying to get a little deeper. I'm wondering if this also would be considered a compounding effect to you. If you were practicing something like, let's so elegant swift scales, and then 
you're also practicing ele- elegant swift scales over autumn leaves or like mm. or you could go deeper than that like autumn leaves in blue mm. is that a count compounding effect because you're essentially taking information and applying it you're taking something mundane like a scale but you're creating it's becoming not mundane through emotion Mm -hmm. and then you're Mm -hmm. applying that over top of a piece Mm -hmm. of music that has actual Mm -hmm. harmonic context and meaning Mm -hmm. am i I, this this is coming off the top of my head does that make sense yeah would you recommend that (laughs) yeah that's that's what doctor tell me that's what integration is integration and consolidation so you you figure out what's blue first of all so you look at something blue and uh and then you think you look at that and you play a note and you think well what's it like for me to play a note blue okay what's it like for me to play a scale blue and then you built up sort of a concept and then all of a sudden what's it like to play autumn leaves blue works better and what you're doing is you're integrating those concepts and that's another important part of practicing that gets very very little attention is the integration process so you in yoga we do a practice we arch up we we challenge ourselves and we come back down into what savasana corpse pose and we lay there for 10 minutes and let the body integrate what it just did and is that is that a relaxate that's a a a pose uh, it's more of a relaxed pose am i correct oh it's completely it's corpse pose you're laying completely on your back, palms are up, you're, everything is relaxed, and you're just laying there with your eyes closed, doing nothing. That, that's, we want that after we practice for a number of reasons. You want, first of all, if you've had a really good practice session, your mind will hopefully be swirling with the... right. Things that the tunes that you've played, they'll be playing themselves back in your head. The feelings in your body are going to be firing. You're going to be remembering all this stuff and your body will have been worked to some extent as well. Certain muscles will have been repetitively tightened. Other ones will have been stretched. Ligaments, fascia, all of it. No music practice is physically balanced. So to integrate after a practice, you want to lay down in something like constructive rest where you've got your legs up on a chair or your your knees bent so your back is flat, you're laying down, you're comfortable, maybe you have a pillow or a book behind your head. You just lay there for five minutes and feel and let all of that activity resonate through. If you imagine a performance where I play the last note and then I get up and I run out <laughs> without even letting it ring in the concert hall and letting the audience feel that last, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, you know, or the applause. How often do we practice and not make room for the applause afterwards? Oh, man, that's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's it, the temptation so often is is to uh, practice and consider it like, okay, I either got that off my list or practice and be like, well, I, I still sound horrible. Or uh, practice and go, uh, you know, let's go to the next thing right away. Uh, actually, someone yeah. in our, our, our community recently said uh, a big win for them was that they were able to um, not try to rush through the process to get to the end goal. 
they were allowing themselves all the air and space they need in order to get to that place rather than just trying to you know get that thing done and then move on to the next one thinking that the the speed at which they accomplish will help them reach their goal faster but rather processing the information in their own time and space helps them get there that's a huge win that's like the yeah. ultimate win yeah yeah i when i heard that too <laughs> yeah. i was like wow that's amazing <laughs> i love <Yeah>. that <laughs> that's awesome there that's integration right in one word because we're going to practice naming our practice strategies so yes. that folks can take them home that's the practice of integration it means making space afterwards and we have to talk about interleaving and spacing um but i actually want to talk about reward and punishment because you just talked about sort of saying oh that sucked or not really giving yourself a reward there's a really fun study done in 2015 called carrot or stick in motor learning by sternad and cording where they talk about a salsa dancer. I remember their their article starts out like, when you're dancing salsa with your partner, should they give you an evil eye when you misstep? And <laughs> <laughs> will that help you learn salsa better? The researchers would like to know. And, <laughs> and they go in and they, they basically tested whether reward, the effect of reward and punishment on motor learning. So it turns out, that reward helps you retain your learning and punishment. What do you think punishment does? Uh, I imagine it, it, it makes you not want to return to the bed of the pain makes you not want to return to it. <laughs> it. Yeah. Well, that's actually, that's actually right in sort of a twisted way. <laughs> yeah. It makes you want to run away and never practice again. Um, it, it does make you not want to do it again, but if you punish correctly, it aids adaptation. Okay. Which means, yeah, I don't want to make that mistake again. Right, right. I, I don't I, want to I, go, yeah. I see the other angle, yes. Yeah. So there is a room for that, but punishment, the, the role of punishment is to aid adaptation. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to punish yourself and Honoring and listening to your emotional reactions is absolutely essential. Emotional intelligence is a big part of practicing well. You got to listen to that voice that says, that sucked. Right. And you go, ow, that hurt, inner critic. What? Well, can you tell me at least what specifically sucked? <laughs> you, go, you sounded like mm, caca. And well, what sounded like caca? You know, there's, you have to be able to eventually get them to say, uh, in, in the head of the tune, you played the wrong notes <laughs> for an entire bar straight. And you go, oh, uh, you mean I, want, I should play the right notes? And yeah, 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 please play the right notes. Okay, well, let's um, maybe play it slowly, right? Make sure that I know the notes. So you go over it and you uh, then reward yourself Maybe even as simple as a glass of water, pat on the back, a nice stretch. Um, you can use memes, cat like cat or dog videos, trigger <laughs> dopamine or baby videos. It's really simple hacks. Uh, you, all you're going to do is just push the dopamine button on your brain. <laughs> There's gotcha. a million ways to do it. That's so interesting. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's basically it. You know, punishment, use it to aid adaptation. In order to do that, you need to be able to emotionally regulate. 
yourself. So it's a, well, something that I was kind of reading into what you said is, you know, okay, the, uh, listening to that voice that is saying, hey, that wasn't good, right? Your mm-hmm. emotional mind saying, hey, that wasn't, uh, well, your logical mind maybe saying that wasn't that great. And your emotional mind going, well, that kind of hurt. But then mm-hmm. going and saying, there's like a compassionate element of going, well, let's just play mm-hmm. it slow. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, now you could play it right. Okay, great. Now hit the dopamine button. Is that, is it, am I tracking with that correctly? Yeah, that's kind of like the mastery level or the, the, the inner adult, if you will. The inner parent. <laughs> um, so what happens is that we can become very emotionally dysregulated. And that, what that, what happens is you get angry and frustrated and all of a sudden that anger takes over and there's no place to say, whoa, I'm angry. I, I should shift out of this and have some compassion and take some effective action. Instead, you're just, oh, that sucked, and I'm going to the next thing, and I'm going to make that suck too. And then I'm going to have even more excuse to beat up on myself. That's where um, emotional regulation is is super important. And in fact, I was looking at studies on this as well. There, There is a technique that was taught to special forces pistol shooting, to regulate their emotional state. So using breathing um, in that case and thought adaptation patterns in that case. We'll talk about what works for musicians in a second. They saw a 30% improvement in accuracy. And these people that already know how to shoot a pistol, right. by the way, <laughs> these are special forces pistol shooters, 30% improvement. That's big. Anything more than a 2 to 5% improvement in anything is like, whew. Exactly. Let's, t- let's take advantage of that. Yeah. So for musicians, um, there, there's a bunch of ways to regulate yourself. Basically, emotional regulation involves identifying what you're feeling at any given moment and using strategies to address those feelings to return yourself to balance. One of those strategies, there's about six that have been identified by these researchers, Hay and Chevins, who are like the, they lot of research on emotional regulation. One of them is to listen to music. Ah, easy. Easy. But have you ever been in a place when you listen to music and you're not connecting with it? Oh, many times. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that to me, it's like a really good touch point in a practice session. Can I listen to music with a musical state of being or a beautiful state of being, a receptive state of being? If I can't, maybe I should lay down and listen to a little bit more music until I start feeling it. Gotcha. So I like to start my music practice sessions by listening for a number of reasons. It's synergistic. First of all, you're listening to great music. Second of all, you're doing a basic regulation of your nervous system, preparing yourself. And third, you're doing a physical regulation of your nervous system, whether you need to lay down and take a sec to chill out or whether you want to dance and get things moving. That depends on the day, but having music before your practice is just like a total no-brainer. It that it, it seems like it makes perfect like a perfect marriage of sense. Yeah, yeah, that's synergy, and we want synergy. Um, so the other one of the other emotional regulation strategies is called venting. I think we all know what that is. Oh yeah, <laughs> and there's a way to vent musically that is very constructive. A lot of times the verbal venting is unconstructive because it tends to reinforce a story about what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suck because I just can't play anything right. 
and you get more angry and then you start saying the same things and it recycles the emotions since you're not actually um, having a constructive vent. If you do want a constructive vent, a good way to do it is to set a timer and record yourself on video or audio for like a minute venting full out force and then listen back to it. It's pretty amazing. That would be an interesting, I'm like, I'm like almost inspired to try that. (laughs) Oh, dude, definitely. Definitely. Next time something upsets you. When you're practicing, you can also bang it out. Or (laughs) whatever you're feeling. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling frustrated, um, whatever it is, slow even, meet yourself where you're at. And this is a really powerful practice because you're actually building your skill of being able to express where you're at in any given moment, which is essential as a musician. And you're taking care of your emotional state so that you can be able to practice. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I like that. That's really good. It's it's allowing yourself just to we were so often when we're practicing we're playing we're trying to do something very specific right and it has to be within this parameter and you're saying take it outside of that parameter and just allow whatever is happening inside to come out on your instrument absolutely yeah absolutely that that's one of the big creators of shall we say robust or resilient skills is varied repetition so if you imagine um, shooting free throws, there's two ways you can go about it. And it's been studied immensely because basketball, of course, lots of money in that. Same tennis, golf, all of that. If you shoot free throws from the free throw line every time, well, that's fine. You'll build that specific skill. But if you spend some time training five feet in front of the free throw line, five feet behind it, you know, you're actually going to have a more resilient skill and you're going to improve your three pointers and your short shots as well so varied repetition is essential for anybody who has a highly varied skill that they're practicing what's like an example for that in in, in music well that that a really wild example would be all of a sudden if you're playing a super sweet ballad and you're feeling frustrated with the the way that you're playing it to turn it into a triple forte, um, bash your face out, heavy metal, angry version of the ballad. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> this is Let It Be in the Key of Rage. <laughs> and th- that's one way to vary it. And actually, you're going to find like certain things break down, certain things work better. And you'll come back to the tune and it'll, it'll actually, you've made the tune better and you've regulated your emotions. One thing I like to do actually with certain jazz ballads is I actually like to play them up tempo. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually, well, first of all, it's a lot of fun because it's a completely different perspective mm-hmm. on the piece itself. Mm-hmm. But then when you come back, exactly what you're saying, when you come back to it at the, you know, slow tempo that it's intended of, it feels almost, uh, it feels easier somehow, you know, <laughs> especially because ballads with chords, they tend to go by pretty quickly. Yeah, there's um, there's a curve, a power law to learning. It's actually 
it's actually down. I mean, I'm not sure if Zoom is flipping us, but it's the law of forgetting. And then, of course, the law of diminishing returns are both power law curves, meaning that when you're learning something, you make the most gains on it at first. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of a medium time when you're making, still making good gains on it. And then there's like the long tail of 1%.1%.001% improvement. Is that you follow? Oh, yeah. Following. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a lot of diminishing returns. We're all familiar with it. And that power law, that curve gets reset when you vary the repetition of something so that you can make initial fast gains again. Yeah. Love that. And so what you're talking about is, is absolutely brilliant of playing something really, really much faster or much slower because it's also going to give you sort of a different architectural angle on the way that the piece yes. goes by and the the gestures at a different level. Yes. I think that's really, really good. There, there's one of my sort of almost idols, if you will, is San Francisco Symphony trumpet player Mark Inouye. Do you know him by any chance or know of him? I don't, no, no. He is, he is a, a beast of a musician and practicer. And he is not just one of the most respected classical trumpet players of our time. He's also a really, really uh, serious jazz cat. Plays okay. at Yoshi's in San Francisco oh, all yeah. the time. and um, Tremendous player. One of the things that he does is he, he plays tunes. He'll record himself and then listen back at half speed. Hmm. And boy, do you hear a lot of crap when you slow down and listen to half speed at yourself, especially if it's like a fast technical passage. Try recording yourself playing that passage and then listen back at half speed. Remember that if you get angry, you can emotionally regulate (laughs) and that punishment is just a tool for adaptation. (laughs) Um, But what, what you can do then is you can take notes, you know, on exactly what you want to improve. It allows you to get very specific about what you want to improve. And then my addition to that practice technique, which I love, is to record myself playing that passage, but at half the metronome mark. Okay. And I do this in Modacity, which I'll play it at half the metronome marking, and then Modacity can 2x the speed because it has really good speed controls on the recording. And so then what I get to do is I get to correct what I heard at half speed by playing it exactly as it would sound at half speed with perfection. You follow? Because on Modacity, you can speed it up and it will not change the pitch. Is that what you're saying? That's right. I mean, if you have a recorder, if you have a recorder that changes the pitch, you just play an octave down. But the say that I have a, I hear that my pitch is warbling, actually. That would be more of like a long passage. But let's say that I hear when I do half speed that my sound is actually like, instead of, right? right? Then when I play it at half speed, I'm going to play, really focus on eliminating that warble at half speed. And then I'm going to listen back to it at full speed. So 2x the speed that I recorded it at. Now it's going to sound like I'm playing the passage at its original tempo, but with insane detail and cleanliness. Wow, that's cool. I like that. That's that's a that's a clever hack. I like that. And 
when you hear yourself, it's like the four minute mile effect. You know, people thought for forever you couldn't run a mile in four minutes. As soon as Rogerster, Roger, Roger Bannister did it, yeah, <laughs> Rogerster, yeah, um, something. <laughs> Roger Bannister, as soon as he, as soon as he did it, like a bunch of other folks ran the four minute mile, and today it's not even a thing, right? So when you have a concept and you hear it and you know it's possible, your brain's going to figure out how to achieve it. So when you listen back to a recording of yourself absolutely crushing it with insane detail on a fast passage. Your brain's going to figure out how to do that. Wow, that's really you. cool. That's really cool. And the way you illustrated that was very good with the whole four-minute mile thing. Thank C- you. Kudos to you to be an excellent communicator. <laughs> I received the reward <laughs> to aid my retention. Dopamine hit. <laughs> yes, love it. So that's called, um, I call that self-recording very speed. And when you talked about playing a ballad faster, you can do it the opposite way as well where you play something, say a ballad, listen back to it at double speed or 4x speed. And what you're going to hear is like, oh, there's an interesting architecture. It's more clear how I'm phrasing point to point, high point to low point and phrasing or what's going on. And you play it back as well. Then you perform it at double speed, perform it at quadruple speed. Maybe you need to leave some notes out, but you're just hitting kind of the main points, the framework of the phrase or the tune. And that's going to give you like different levels of chunks that make your skill more resilient. Awesome. What other strategies uh, did, did you have left on your, your list you wanted to share? <laughs> and you, you just, it's your endless stream. I, I, I just made a list of like my 25 favorite strategies. I should turn this into a blog post. There's no way we can cover all of this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be a good blog post. <laughs> I've got one more, one more that's, okay. that's really, really important. Okay, um, good. I'll and let we'll you share. briefly cover it. It's live looping. Okay. There, there's no excuse these days for any musician to not live loop. And it just combines, it's, it's such a multivitamin for you because you're working on your timing. You get to hear yourself. It's self-recording. And you're working on your intonation. You're working on your articulation. You're hearing everything. And there's room for creativity, emotional expression, um, self-reflection and you're hearing everything that you played over and over and over and over and so in the background you're going to be processing all the little cells that you've already performed and refining them and understanding later how how you want to refine them and if you record yourself you've got an artifact of creativity that's actually shareable yes Uh, i i if you don't mind i'd love love to share a little something about recording is in our inner circle membership. That is recording is like one of the biggest things that we do. We like share recordings of everything that we're doing Mm -hmm. recording hands down. Not, not me saying it. It's all the members saying it is one of like the most powerful things. Yeah. And the fact that you're sharing it with other people, uh, Mm. the fact that, you're when you're recording it's a little different than just practicing like you're really trying to do something with intention to get it to 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 get it correct and the fact that you can listen back to track your progress um yeah. anyways just a little side note there the, the the powers of recording that i found it's huge the way that we assess when we're performing versus when we're listening back is it's proven to be different there's two 2015 study on that, the effect of audio recording and playback on self-assessment, uh, and the psychology <laughs> wow. of music that uh, talks talks in depth about that. 
And and that's why in Modacity, the, the record button there is front and center, and we've got all these things around being able to quickly discard a recording or save it or change the speed or share it. And it just automatically organizes and saves your recordings on the songs rather than like on a timeline basis, like we were talking about having sort of the digital equivalent of an index card right. for each song that has the recordings tagged on it, your notes, your deliberate practice strategies, your timestamps everything that's worked for you. That's kind of, it's been almost like an unfair advantage for me and some of the folks that have used it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, talk to me a bit about, oh, oh, I'm sorry, was that was that the, that, that was the live looping? Was there anything else you wanted to say about that? I don't want to cut that off. I just, it's easy these days. You just so, got to do it. <laughs> you just got to do it. <laughs> No, that's perfect. I wanted to. I wanted to. Kind of, you were wanted to segue into you talking a bit about Modacity, just because it is such a. I've used it myself a bit. It, it's a powerful app, powerful tool. Um, talked about. Talk a little bit more about it and how some of these things we've talked about today, how Modacity mm-hmm. can help. Well, say with um, recording yourself is a really, really great start. That's getting you from zero to a thousand. If you record yourself and you used a little bit of objective rating after that to prioritize what you're working on, um, then all of a sudden you have a way to prioritize your work and a history of your mastery, your trends of mastery. And that, that's something our, actually our head of customer service, Jared, I met him because he was using Modacity to prepare for a tour and he memorized 25 songs in 16 hours. Wow. Using the the rating system, he backing v- vocals, bass, and lead melody, and he he said it felt like cheating when he w- finally got to the first rehearsal for the band, and wow. and that it was the rating that actually mattered to him because he would practice the song and rate it, and then he could order his practice list based on the rating of each song and know exactly what to prioritize. He would set rigorous timers. So Modacity, basically one of the unfair advantages of Modacity is that it removes decision fatigue Mm. from the equation. And we talked about flow and one of the primary obstacles to flow is decision fatigue. So when you know that you can commit yourself to sort of like the right brain, creative, immersive aspect of practice, that you are able to really go deep and enjoy. But when you're thinking about time and what should I do, should I move on, should I not move on, that inhibits you from fully going into artist mode. So Modacity has like quite a robust timer system that allows you to set up practice lists in advance, almost like a workout tracker where you say, I'm going to do this, 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 and this for 30 seconds, a minute and a half. You can interleave and track your time so by limiting your practice time which is another uh tip by the way from violinist pamela frank she's limit always limit your practice time because otherwise when it's unbounded you just feel like you can do everything oh Um, i can can totally resonate with that yeah yeah set a timer stop before you feel totally fatigued and you're going to come back hungry to practice more and that's what it's all about. I want people to be hungry to practice every day. Yes. <laughs> Modacity in a nutshell is a tool for increasing your motivation, getting a little bit more deliberate, and then using a lot of 
this kind of science-informed framework giving you the structure so that you can really flourish as an artist and consistently make gains that compound over time reliably. Awesome. I love that. Modesty, what a great app. Uh, Mark, where can people find and learn more about Modesty? Yeah, we've got a, our website is modacity.co, modacity.co. And you and I have set up that special offer for folks at modacity.co forward slash learn jazz standards. So we've got kind of like a lifetime license so that you don't have to go through the app store. It just makes it a lot simpler. Awesome. So modacity.co forward slash learn jazz standards to take Mark up on that offer. Mark, man, thank you so much for just unloading so much amazing information. (laughs) And I really appreciate having you as a guest too, because you just see things from a slightly different lens than what most people want to talk about. And I just really Mm. appreciate you bringing that to the table today, uh, enlightening me, enlightening all of our guests. And, uh, you know, this has been a great time and uh, we'll look forward to having you next time. Thank you, Brent. I'm wishing you much more uh, amazing contribution and to your community, wonderful music making and practicing. All right, that's all for today's show. I want to thank Mark Gelfo again for coming on and being a special guest. Again, modacity.co forward slash learn jazz standards to check out Modacity and learn more there. Uh, hey, also, if you've never considered uh, joining our LJS Inner Circle membership, could be a good idea to go check it out, see if it's a good fit for you. We have a good time in there practicing together, doing jazz standard studies together, working on courses together. It's a really vibrant community of like-minded musicians. We're actually coming up with our birthday, our one-year birthday, uh, starting next week. So next week, I actually have a very special podcast episode you're not going to want to miss. has a lot, a lot, a lot of special guests on it. So definitely stay tuned for that. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast in case you haven't before. Uh, go to ljsinnercircle.com to check out the Inner Circle membership. All right. Until next time, we'll see you at our special episode next week. Happy practicing and cheers. Thanks for listening to the LJS Podcast, brought to you by LearnJazzStandards.com. Subscribe to the series on iTunes, and don't forget to join our jazz community at LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash newsletter. Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask. That's LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.